You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 tonight. Back in 2007, the Air Force realized it needed to get its non-combat personnel who were headed to Iraq and Afghanistan quickly up to combat readiness. They developed a five-day crash course, two days in the classroom, learning about body armor, chemical warfare, protection suits, high-risk isolation scenarios and the like, and then three days of field exercises. Said Colonel Scott Bethel, when we hand them an M16, they won't say, which end do I point downrange? The moment you become a Christian, you are thrust into a war zone, and you most definitely need a crash course on spiritual warfare. Any crash course in spiritual warfare would begin with the classic New Testament passage, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Now, as we get into these tonight, you'll see that there are two separate tracks to follow in those verses. Verse 12, for example, describes our enemies, the devil, the wicked one, who commands principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, the spiritual hosts of wickedness. The remaining verses describe our own equipping to fight those enemies. Now, since we're in a time of war, fierce spiritual war, our greatest need is to understand our equipping right now because we're coming under attack right now. We'll be able to study our enemy in more detail later. So we're going to pursue a track of uh, our spiritual weaponry and warfare, uh, and then we'll go back and take a look at uh, the enemy in a more detailed way as a part of the study. Some of you received the email uh, blitz that we sent out. If you have questions about spiritual warfare, uh, angels, demons, those kinds of things, uh, some, something that you want addressed as we go through this series, please let us know. Some of you have already, and we will uh, either, uh, well, we will answer all of those questions. If you have a portion of Scripture that you feel is about spiritual warfare, um, we'll probably cover it, but suggest it to me anyway so that I can make sure that we do because uh, this is going to be a, a series that we're going to be in for a while because, as I told you last time, the Bible begins with conflict and it ends with a great conflict before the creation of the new heaven and the new earth, and there's a lot of spiritual warfare in between. And, and so it's one of the huge topics in the Bible, really, and um, we, we don't probably talk about it from a warfare mentality as often as we ought to. So uh, get those in to us, contact at calvaryhanford.com. Uh, Ephesians 6.10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. The very first thing you get from Ephesians 6 in general is that I must soldier up every day because I am in a constant conflict. I don't just put on armor when I'm in a trial or when I'm involved in some Christian service. I'm to be suited up all of the time. I'm to be armored at home and at work and in school, on vacation. You get the idea. There's never a time or a place where I don't need the armor of God, even in the church of Jesus Christ, because we know that Satan comes to church. He creeps in, false teachers creep in, and others seeking to deceive uh, even the elect. And so uh, we always need to have this warfare mentality. The word finally should be translated from this point forward. What point? Well, ideally from the point at which you first became a Christian. You are born again resulting in radical changes in your marriage and family and at work. It's as if Jesus were in your home, at your job. You take a stand, the devil and his demons take note of it, and the battle is on. Now, I'm talking about the classic case of an individual who is saved later in life, my experience. 
uh, things are slightly different, of course, if you grew up a Christian or from your earliest memory had confessed Christ. Uh, but the idea is the same. Uh, there is a point at which uh, you are now serving the Lord. You are, we would say, taking a stand for the Lord. And uh, in doing so, you are declaring yourself an enemy combatant uh, to these demonic forces. Uh, and so from this point forward, it could also be at any point at which you decide to really commit yourself to the Lord and walk in the power of a spirit-filled life. So maybe you uh, have been a marginal Christian or you're a backslidden Christian, those kinds of things. Then you recommit yourself to the Lord. And from that point forward, you're going to really commit yourself to the Lord and walk in His power. And you'll find that you don't have to look very far for opposition. You don't have to go looking for opposition. It finds you. Uh, because the devil is not happy when you take a stand. Be strong is in a verb tense that means to be continually strengthened. You're continually strengthened in the Lord as you put on the armor he's provided. The armor is the power of his might. Power refers to the power that was revealed by the Lord when he was on the earth. By his death and resurrection and ascension, he was victorious over the devil. In Colossians, you read that Jesus at the cross disarmed principalities and powers. And so you notice we're in this spiritual warfare mode, but you'll notice so often these warfare-type analogies. He disarmed them. It doesn't just say he overcame them or defeated them or, you know, he, he disarmed them. He took away their weaponry. Might refers to the power that resides in the Lord in heaven. And we'll see that in his second coming, he returns to vanquish the devil. In between the Lord's victory in the past at the cross and the vanquishing to come at his second coming, you and I occupy enemy territory. And that's why you need to, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. This word stand is probably the most important word in these verses, or at least from the point of view that it is the one that's repeated over and over again. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil, uh, verse 11. Then in verse 13, we see it twice. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. And then in verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth. And as I alluded to a moment ago, we use the phrase, take a stand. It means we take a position in opposition to others. It means we resist their influence. You take your stand. As Christians, by the very nature of being translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God, we take a stand against the devil. Things that you, uh, you know, that you indulged your flesh in, things of the world, uh, suddenly those things are foreign to you and you're standing against them. You've chosen sides. If there's a line drawn in the sand, you've crossed over it. Uh, I know when we first got saved, we got rid of a whole bunch of stuff that was in our life. I'm, I'm you know, uh, this was just our testimony, but we got rid of the dope and the booze and I got rid of a lot of books that I, you know, uh, had been collecting. They weren't books of magic and occult, like in Ephesus. I wish I could say that, then I'd have a much better testimony, you know, but they were mostly junk psychology books and philosophy books from uh, UC Riverside, but we got rid of a lot, we, and so we took a stand. 
And then one of the first things that happened was we, uh, the, the coming weekend, uh, we were supposed to go down to Mexico with some dear friends of ours, and um, we used to go down to Mexico and drink at Husong's Cantina down there. Uh, that, that's just what you did when you were from Southern California. And so uh, we had this, this drunken weekend planned with our friends, and the phone rang, and, we th- and immediately we thought, oh, that's going to be them, and we're going to have to tell them that we can't go. Or, well, let's tell them we'll go, but we're not going to drink. Or, I mean, we were in a big quandary, you know, but we had finally said, hey, you know, we became Christians, and oh, yeah, have a nice life, you know, kind of a thing. And so you take a stand. Uh, you, you don't even know you're taking a stand. You just do because you've changed. You, you're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And from, a, from the point of view of a warfare, the devil says, hey, that guy took a stand. And he's going to take that stand in the home and at work and at play and on vacation and wherever he at. So we've got to do something about this. We have to destroy that person's testimony in some way because we can't have Christians taking a stand. Verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul is not changing metaphors. He's not talking about an athletic event in a gymnasium when he mentions wrestling here. He's describing a fully armed soldier wrestling against enemies. When a fully armed soldier is wrestling, he's involved in close quarter, eyeball-to-eyeball, hand-to-hand combat. It's bayonets on is what this is. In this case, you're the soldier and the enemy is supernatural. As I like to say, it's mano y diablos. It's you versus the devil in close quarter fighting. As I said, we're going to skip over the devil and his minions and get right to your armor. We'll have plenty of time starting in Genesis talking about the serpent and moving forward to look at Satan and his origins and answer those questions, but uh, we want to get right into our warfare. Paul was all too familiar with Roman soldiers. He was probably being guarded by one while he was dictating this letter to the Ephesians. Certainly, there were plenty of Roman soldiers around. He looked over and said to him, I'm going to put you in the Bible. I bet he did. I mean, I'm, I'm just speculating, but, you know, wouldn't that be cool? Say, what are you writing about? Huh? I'm writing about you. Wouldn't that be a great segue? What do you mean you're writing about me? Well, you know, I've got this analogy I'm working out in the Holy Spirit. And so uh, he, he starts doing that. Putting on the whole armor of God involves both what you believe and how you behave. The armor is given to you by God. Each piece involves something spiritual that you believe that he has given to you as a Christian. It's something that belongs to you by virtue of having been born again. You just need to believe it. But you must put on the armor in the sense that you must behave in a manner consistent with what you believe in order to hold your spiritual ground. Uh, The armor is yours, but you don't have to put it on. Every now and then, you'll read a story about a police officer who was shot and he wasn't wearing his uh, Kevlar vest. And people say, ah, why wasn't he wearing that vest? How many of you have worn Kevlar vests in 109-degree heat? It's uncomfortable. I have one. They gave me one as a chaplain, and uh, I don't wear it when I'm out with the cops. And, and it, it, it's, you, first of all, you put it on, and you think you're going to suffocate 
because it's heavy and I really, you know, these military guys, some of you military, ex-military wearing, you know, 300 pounds of gear, you know, and stuff, I can't even handle the vest. And so a lot of times a police officer will just say, well, you know, it's small town living or whatever and they take their vest up and then they, they get shot. Uh, so you, you, I can believe that that vest stops a bullet or a knife, but I also have to put it on in order for that. By the way, the, it's a, it, the, the history of the Kevlar vest is really fascinating. Nobody believed it would stop a bullet, and so the guy that developed it had to shoot at himself uh, and before, you know, and, uh, kudos to him for believing in his product, you know. But anyway, so that's the idea. Uh, it, it doesn't do you any good unless you actually appropriate it. And so verse 13, take up, therefore, the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Uh, all that the Lord is asking you to do is to take a stand, and by that mean, uh, he means just be a Christian in whatever situation that you find yourself in. In the evil day is a description of the world ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Every day is evil in that sense. The whole creation groans waiting for the redemption uh, that God has promised it. And therefore, we're forced to take a stand because we're to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're, we're to be a separated people in the world but not of the world. You know all of those things. And so just by virtue of being a Christian and telling people I'm a Christian, you are taking a stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you become uh, an enemy combatant. Verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Soldier was girded with a leather belt underneath that held all of the other equipment together. Your belt is truth. We know that God's word is truth. Think of Adam and Eve. That's where it all started, where it all went horribly wrong. Had they simply believed God's word was absolutely true, they would have withstood the serpent's lies. They essentially, Eve and then tempting Adam, uh, they fell for the lie of the devil rather than believing what God had told them. The devil said, if you eat that fruit, you're not going to die. God said, if we eat that fruit, we're going to die. Yeah, no, no, you're not. He's hiding something from you. He's withholding something from you. He's not, in fact, he, you know, God is not telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. I'm your friend. I'm the talking serpent telling you the truth. And, and uh, it's very fascinating. But so truth would have solved all of this. I said the armor involves what you believe and how you behave. With regards to truth, most Christians believe the truth as revealed by God in his word. I said most because, um, you know, there's some exceptions, people, you know, I guess. But uh, if, if most Christians that you guys know, if you say, hey, is, here's the word of God, do you believe it's true and that it's the word of God? They would say yes. But we find that Christians have a tendency to behave erratically. Case in point today, this is the example I would use today in today's Christian culture. Christians would agree sex outside of marriage is sin, but you'd never know that by their behavior, by their actual behavior. Uh, it, it's just something that is pretty rampant in the church. Maybe it always is, but um, and so there's a disconnect. This is why this is just an example, but it's a, there's a disconnect between what we believe and know to be true and how we actually behave based on that truth so we can 
we have to both believe and behave in the sphere of truth in order for us to take a stand. Otherwise, what happens if we fall into the, a sin like that or others where we just don't believe, you know, behave, then we have failed to take a stand. We are just like the world we were delivered out of, uh, and, and we lose our testimony and have no effect in the greater spiritual battle for the souls of men and women. So this stuff is very simple. We tend to overcomplicate it. The, the hard part is putting it into practice, not understanding it. Verse 14, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Obviously, the breastplate covered uh, the uh, individual like a Kevlar vest. There are some who say it only covered the front, some who say it covered the front and the back. One thing I, I would like to mention, I, I think we have to be careful getting too deep into the actual armor that a Roman soldier wore. It's an analogy, it's an illustration, you know, because uh, I, I read one commentary that made a big deal about the fact that the breastplate only covered your front because they never wanted the Roman soldier to turn around and retreat. Uh, he would be exposed, and so they purposely left the breastplate you know, one-sided. I don't know if that's true. Uh, even if it is true, it doesn't mean anything to us because the breastplate here is righteousness. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, He takes your sin and He gives you His righteousness. God declares you righteous because of what Jesus has done and you are saved for eternity. How is God's righteousness part of your armor? It protects you to know that nothing can ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. This transaction of God taking your place on the cross, dying for your sins, past, present, and future, uh, so that taking your the uh, penal uh, justice that was due against you so that you could be in the family of God, no matter how severe your supernatural struggle Jesus says, I will never, not ever leave you or forsake you. And so this is, to me, this is a, a, a really key component to spiritual warfare, to know that the Lord, uh, I cannot be separated from the Lord's love. Because what's the, pretty much the first thing that happens to us when we get involved in some kind of a struggle or trial, we feel that God has somehow forgotten or abandoned us or is mad at us or hates us or some such thing, depending on how we want to put it. And we struggle with the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, even though the Bible says that he will never leave us or forsake us, and that he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the Roman soldier wore sandals which had small nails in the sole, so essentially they invented golf shoes. He was thus able to dig in and hold his ground during an assault without losing balance. Your sandals are the preparation of the gospel of peace. Uh, we would say of that tonight, you have peace with God, and as a result, experience the peace of God, and the peace of God guards your heart in the midst of the fiercest of struggles. I was watching, uh, so how many of you have seen Band of Brothers? It's really old now, right? Do you, yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna bust you or say anything bad. I started watching it the other night, and I was watching a scene and um, there's a scene where this one, there's one really scared soldier and there's one guy who's just, 
you know, walking in front of tanks and stuff. And he finally shares his philosophy. He says, you, to the guy who's afraid, he says, you just don't get it. You have to give up all hope. You're already dead in this war. And then you won't be afraid of anything. And I thought, wow, I don't know. I don't know what I think about that. You know, that's, that's kind of weird. Um, but I, 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 I can understand in a different sense that I can have the peace of God to guard my heart in any spiritual battle because the worst that could happen to me is that I would die. And like Paul the Apostle, I can say, I don't know if that's such a bad thing because I have a desire to be with the Lord. I don't have a death wish, but should that be God's plan, then I'm going to be okay because part of what Jesus won in his victory over the devil and his minions was he conquered death. Uh, and death as an enemy is no more. <clears throat> Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith uh, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, above all doesn't mean it's more important. The phrase should be translated in addition to these. Shield described here would have been a large oblong shield that was able to defend the entire body from flaming arrows tipped with tar or pitch. When those arrows hit, they would splash fire all over. The shield deflected these and allowed the soldier to hold his ground or make an advance. Your shield is faith. God's word is truth. You've been declared righteous. You're at peace with God, and you can have the peace of God. All you have to do is maintain that posture by faith. You simply have to believe that those things are actually true, and it's, in one sense, easy to believe that because you can always look to the cross where Jesus died to make them true. And the helmet of salvation, verse 17. Now, we have some help in interpreting this and another portion of Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, Paul says to put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. Now, the hope he's talking about here is the sure hope of your completed salvation. We see salvation in three steps. Uh, you are saved the moment you accept Christ. You go on being sanctified, being made more like Christ, being changed from glory to glory throughout your life as you mature in Christ. And then when we go to be with the Lord and receive our glorified body, he completes the good work that he began in us when he saved us. And so this is the sure hope that he who had begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And you take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, verse 17. Uh, we've already said that truth is the Word of God, so how is it that the sword of the Spirit is also the Word of God? Well, the word for word here is rhema, uh, rhema is a precise particular word from God's word that is perfect for your particular warfare. It's the sword of the Spirit in the sense that the Holy Spirit brings a word from God's word to you. Your sword is the rhema that you need to stand your ground and to withstand. When we study Satan's temptations of Christ, we did that on Sunday morning, but we'll do it again here in this context, Jesus had a particular rhema from the Word of God in each temptation. In fact, he only answered the devil with the Word of God. And he, in the Spirit, by the Spirit, always had the perfect Word of God. That's an example of what we're saying here, the sword of the Spirit, is to find or to be given or to understand that perfect Word for your situation. And so this is the armor you're told to put on in order to take your stand for the Lord. And here's something I found super encouraging as we close. The Lord himself trusted in and trusts in 
armor like this. Listen for the items of spiritual armor we've mentioned in these passages from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, or however you say that, <laughs> describing Jesus in both his first and second coming. Just listen. I'll put some emphasis on the words, but you'll get it. This is from Isaiah 11, 4 and 5. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Then in Isaiah 59, 17, for put on, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and he was clad with zeal as a cloak. And then Isaiah 52, verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who proclaims glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, those are all references to Jesus as Messiah in either his first or second comings, and they use language that is similar to the language that we find in Ephesians. In fact, so much so that some commentators feel that Paul isn't really talking about the armor of a Roman soldier as much as he's drawing from his Old Testament knowledge of Jesus, the Messiah, as the warrior. In Exodus 15:3, God says of himself, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Uh, and so uh, I don't think that we have to decide which uh, place Paul was drawing from, probably both, but it encourages me that the armor that I take up is Jesus battle-tested already, and, and I can trust in it as much as he did and does and as much as I trust in him. Amen? All right. Praise the Lord.